You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Ben, you may be seated. Thanks, Rob. Just a quick reminder for kids, we do have um, totes over there with a bunch of stuff that you can use. Uh, There's also kids' sermon notes out in the hallway, so parents, if that serves you, you can grab that. Um, Next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, so first and third Sundays we have Redemption Hill Kids for two to four, so that'll be be going again next Sunday. So if that serves you, parents, we'll have that available in addition to the bags and the kids' sermon notes. Well, happy Halloween, but more importantly, happy Reformation Day. Happy Reformation Day. Uh, before getting into the message, I just want to pause and um, remind you why we at least make a mention of Reformation Day, or if you're on, you know, reform circles or Protestant circles on, you know, Twitter and Facebook, everyone's posting about it. What is the Reformation? Why is the Reformation important? So I'm transporting you back to the 16th century. We're headed to Germany to Wittenberg or Wittenberg, however you want to pronounce it. And we got this peculiar man named Martin Luther. He has this bright idea. He's like, you know what? I'm going to write about all the problems with the church. And there were a lot of problems with the church at the time. 95 of them, as a matter of fact. (laughs) And he got his nail and he's got his hammer and he nails it on the Wittenberg chapel door. And little little did he know what he did, his actions changed the world. They really did. I love church history. I spent way too many years studying church history with two different master's degrees, and I could read a church history book for fun. And when I start talking about that, I get all fired up. Um, so rem- so here's, here's what the Reformation was all about. We'll call it the five solas. And again, we'll transition to the sermon here in a moment, but I wanted to mention it. Sola Scriptura, right? We got God's word alone. Sola means alone. We understand who God is and our relationship with God through the scriptures alone. Period. Not some other source book. Not you trying to figure out yourself through God's word. That's why we make a big deal of God's word. And I'm sure you've already seen that this morning um, with Rob uh, opening it up and sharing the passage. And then Ryan giving you several passages we want to get our heads into God's word. So sola scriptura, sola fide, faith alone. By no other means can you be saved than through faith. You may try to do it on your own. You will fail. You might walk into a different system or set of beliefs. You will fail. It's solely by faith alone. Sola fide, sola gratia, by grace alone. So we got scripture alone, faith alone, and it's solely by the grace of God alone. It's by his grace through faith in which a person is saved, Ephesians 2.8. Sola Christus, you're only saved through Christ alone. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not yourself. You're saved through Christ alone. And all of this leads to soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. So the five solos of the Reformation. Happy Reformation Day. I love Reformation Day. But I'm still tired from last night's beggar's night. So, All right. So yesterday morning, now segueing into today's message, 
Yesterday morning, I took my home office to a small cafe in Panora. So if you just get on 44 and you start driving west, you'll eventually hit Panora. I went there because my, my kids were with my in-laws, so I decided to study at the cafe before I picked them up for my in-laws. And I arrive at this cafe, and it was packed. Small town Iowa, man. Love it. And it was, it was literally packed. And so I began to settle in, started uh, going over my notes uh, for today's sermon, and I just made an observation. The medium age at this cafe was probably between 65 and 75. Like, I brought it down. I'm 40. But the medium age, literally, and just groups of people between that age bracket, talking and interacting. And, and as I was beginning to think about my message on suffering, it just kind of occurred to me, I'm in the room, maybe 30 people in this age bracket who've seen a lot of suffering in their day. Like, Truly. Behind each set of eyes were experiences and stories. I didn't know their stories, but I didn't need to ask. Common sense, the testimony of Scripture, living life, and I would imagine data points suggest to me that I was surrounded by a bunch of people who knew pain at various points in their lives. And the older you get, of course, the more you experience What I've gone through in my life would not, have, would not compare, I would imagine, what these people had experienced in life when it comes to pain and suffering. It was a, a sobering moment for me. I'm spending several weeks on the topic of suffering to help prepare your heart for suffering. It's not a topic you're going to hear preached at a lot of churches. I'm spending several weeks on the topic of suffering to hopefully see your trust in God grow. I'm spending several weeks on suffering to instill in you a greater vision, a greater vision for a future hope that lies ahead in the midst of living in this broken world. There's a future hope. I want to instill that vision within you. By the time I'm done preaching, we're going to end up in Revelation 21, where we're going to see what's ahead. I want that to be instilled into your life as you walk this hard and broken world. There's not one person who has not or will not experience suffering in their lifetime. So it's critical we prepare our hearts accordingly. And we will prepare our hearts this morning for suffering by focusing on this one question. You heard it from Ryan from Psalm 13. We see it in Psalm 6. This one question. How long, O oh Lord? How long? That one question. I want us to wrestle with this morning. How long, O oh Lord? So, I could I'm just going to briefly pray I feel the weight of this topic and I need God's help through the spirit to preach Heavenly Father thank you for your word it is indeed instructive for our lives and for our hearts and Lord we come under and submit to the authority of your word and as it is preached I pray that my words would be faithful to what you've already spoken and indeed 
may the end goal be come true for our lives. Prepare our hearts accordingly for suffering. And we will cry, oh God, we will cry to you, how long, oh Lord, how long? We thank you, God, that you are good and faithful. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's anything I've learned throughout 11 years plus of parenting, it's that kids ask a lot of questions. A lot of questions. And if you've got like toddlers who aren't asking questions, I'm just going to prepare you right now. It's coming. A barrage of questions is heading your way. At the Powers House, questions are encouraged. Uh, my, my kids asking questions can be a means of discipleship. Uh, the questions might be mundane or they, they sometimes are very quite profound. As I reflected on years of answering questions, there's one question I, I refuse to answer. It's, are we there yet? Um, that never gets answered. <laughs> That's the one I, 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 I have that in category. I will not answer. We'll be there when we're there. <laughs> Other than that, I've tried to provide uh, quality and biblically faithful answers when my kids ask questions. But I must admit that over the years, there have been times when a question or two or more have gone unanswered. A question might be asked in which I do not know the answer or I need time to, to ponder a little bit more. I have to imagine that unanswered questions might be like frustrating, right? You ask a question, I don't know. Hey, what do you mean you don't know? Your dad, you know. I don't know. I've got to think about it. I've got to do some research, whatever. As a father, I don't like to keep my kids wondering, especially as they continue to mature, right, and ask good questions. Human beings, in general, ask questions for various reasons. We might ask questions out of curiosity, right? Someone's got a curious mind, and it's like, you know, I've got a question about that. I've got a question about that. Uh, we might ask questions out of desire to know, like, all the given outcomes of any situation, right? You're in a situation, you just, like, just want to know how to respond accordingly. We ask, we ask questions for a greater understanding to simply solve a pressing problem. We ask questions at home, in school, at work, around the campfire, or the dinner table with a bunch of friends. Um, we ask questions at church. I highly encourage people asking questions here at Redemption Hill Church. As a matter of fact, as a pastor, I love it when someone after the service comes up to me and asks me a question about my sermon because it says to me they have an attentive mind. They were paying attention, right? That's good. I like questions. Even in this internet age where, where answers seem to be at our fingertips, I actually think it's caused us to ask even more questions because of all the information that we're able to engage But what about asking questions to God? Have you ever pondered that? What about asking questions to God? Is it okay to ask God questions? Let's really think about this for a moment. When we ask questions to one another, we're asking questions to other mortal beings, right? When we ask questions to God, we're asking to an immortal God. When we ask questions to one another, we're asking questions to a fellow finite person. God is infinite. When a husband and wife, for example, ask questions to one another, they are asking questions to another sinner. There's no sin found with God. When we ask questions to, um, to fellow creatures, right? You're a creature, I'm a creature, so we ask questions. God is the creator. So can we imagine asking a question to the, to the one who created you? 
we, we ask questions because we don't know all the answers. God is sovereign and knows all things throughout all generations. So I think, you th- I think we see the difference between simply asking a question to one another and to our sovereign God. And it's natural for us to ask each other questions, but asking questions to God seems weighty. It seems significant. But here's the deal. God loves it when we ask him questions. He wants us to ask him questions. Over the years, I've asked many questions to God. Consider this passage from Luke 11, where Jesus is teaching his disciples about their relationship with their heavenly father. Here's Luke 11. Jesus says, What father among you, if his son asked for a fish, will give instead will instead of a fish, give him a serpent, right? So asking for a fish, and the father's like, no, here's a serpent. What father does that? Fathers don't do that. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, if Sean Powers knows how to give good gifts to their children when they ask, how much more will our heavenly father give us good things when we ask of him? The Holy Spirit is the focus in this particular passage, but I think you see what Jesus is saying in this passage. God delights to respond to our questions. We can establish the fact that it is good to ask questions to God. I think we can do that. God is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and we are his creation. Yet, he allows for this relationship to exist, and in this relationship, we can be like, hey, God, I've got a question. God is a father who is engaged in the lives of his children in a million ways that we don't even see and acknowledge on a daily basis. We do not ask questions in vain, but we ask with joyful dependence upon God. But what about questioning God? It's one thing to ask a question to God, but what about questioning God? There's a difference between asking a question and questioning God. My kids can ask me for an answer to a math equation. I don't like math, so I probably don't know the answer. But they can ask me, right? But it's very different than saying, Dad, you promised this for me, and it's not done yet. Why? I'm going to regret saying this. I'm going to hear about it when I get home. But at the Powers house, there's an unfinished chicken coop. I know there's laughing in this row. There's an un- I finished one of them, and there was this second unfinished chicken coop. A while back, my kids asked me to build them a coop for their Bantam chickens, right? The whole idea is like they'd raise Bantam chickens, and then show them at the state fair. And, um, well, it's been about 80% complete for about, I don't know, maybe a year, <laughs> right? And several times they have asked me, like, how long, Dad? <laughs> How long? When are you going to finish what you started? Now, I have my reasons. But notice the type of question being asked. The question is not about the incomplete chicken coop. It's about my character. Right? You said you would do this, and we got 20% left. What gives? When we come to Psalm 6, a similar and much deeper question is asked of God. David, the author of this psalm, is going through pain, and he says in verse 3, 
But you, O Lord, how long? How long? How long for what? What's King David, the author of the psalm, waiting for? What is David expecting from God? Is God not delivering on a promise he made to David? Or is David's motive for asking how long rooted in something else? Perhaps his own sin, his pain, and his suffering. The question, how long, is not unusual, unusual in the pages of Scripture. We actually see that quite a lot. Ryan read from Psalm 13. As we read in Psalm 6, the question can be asked when a person is going through pain. In the New Testament, Christians ask the question, how long, in relationship to the return of Christ? Like, how long, O Lord, until you return? How long until you return and take away all the pain and all the tears? How long until we're able to see you face to face, O Lord? How long? It is a weighty question, how long? And here's the deal. Here's what Christians must know. You need to be comfortable when it comes to asking the question, how long? We have to be comfortable without an answer on this side of heaven. David cries, how long? Fully aware fully aware that he may die before he even receives an answer. How long? Don't know. It's not definitive, but here's my best guess about the context of David's plea in Psalm 6. The life of King David is well chronicled. You go to First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Uh, you can read all about David there. David is a Bible figure where we have an abundance of information about his life and what's going on in his heart, right? He's written many psalms. God made a promise with David that it would be through his lineage that a greater king, King Jesus, would come. So David was a big deal. We can establish that. Big deal, David. Big deal, David. But David was also a deeply flawed man. Deeply flawed. So we don't realize about David sometimes. For example, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and in an attempt to cover up his sin, he goes ahead and kills Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Hey. Big deal. Big deal, David is also deeply flawed. We read in Psalm 51, David's heartfelt repentance because of his sin, along with God's forgiveness. But there are still consequences for his actions. I mean, David is an adulterer and a murderer. Let's not mince words about the flawed character of David. Well, it was not long before the wheels really fell off the bus for David. David's son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. That's not cool. And then David's older son Absalom murders Amnon because of what happened to their sister. All of this is going on in David's family. And the situation gets worse. It's like, how do you get worse from that? Well, it does get worse, because now we have Absalom, who wants to kill David. It's like, pfft. Man. The decisions of David's children must have tormented David. And I think that's what we see here in Psalm 6. 
go into details of the entire story, I'm just refer you to 2 Samuel uh, 11, chapter 11 to 15. Here's what we can learn from David, right? His life, and then we, what we read in the Psalms, here's what we learn. Life is complicated. The heart is complicated. Certainly he is a sinner, but he's also been sinned against. And yes, tragedy did strike David's life like out of left field. He didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, I think my son's going to try and kill me. It's because life is complicated and messy that David knows he needs God. He needs God. God is not merely his crutch. No, for David, knowing God, Yahweh, Yahweh's used all throughout Psalm 6, for David, knowing God is all about relationship. It's all about relationship. David knows that for him to get through his suffering and pain, he relies on his relationship with God. He knows God and God knows him. David does not approach God hiding his sin or sorrows. God sees and knows it all. David knows that. It's not like he can like close the bedroom door and be like, hey, God can't see. No, he, he sees. He definitely sees. He knows. And because of that, I think, and this is, what we, this is the sense I see in Psalm 6, David is actually able to be vulnerable before God. He can ask the question, how long? And know God hears his plea. As we look at the life of David and his words, I mean, there are lessons for us to learn. Do we come to God like David, right? Not his sin, but there's a, there's a way he approaches God that we can learn from. He approaches God with reverential fear. He approaches God in awe of God's majesty. He approaches God vulnerable. He approaches God confessing sin. And he approaches God admitting his need for help. My hope is that in the remainder of our time, you will approach God vulnerable and needy, coming to God with all the baggage, with all the junk, with all the pain, with all the suffering. Now let's look a little bit further at what David says. If you're a note taker, here are three headings to help you track along with the rest of the sermon. In verses 1 to 5, we read about David's pain, right? Or excuse me, his plea. His plea to God. That's where we see the how long, O Lord. And then in verse 6 and 7, we see his pain. And that's really intense. And then in verse 8 to 10, we have the path. And that is alliteration. That might be the first time I've alliterated something in about about 8 years, 10 years. I don't know. So good on me. All right, let's look at the plea. Verses 1 to 5. Here's David's plea, starting in verse 1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Have you ever been at a moment in your life where you've been languishing? You're just like, I just can't get out of bed. And then David says, heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. And notice in verse 2 and 3, he's taken his whole being into account. My bones are troubled. And my soul is greatly troubled. Everything about David's life is in pain and in suffering. It's worth mentioning that Psalm 6, and this is, 
This is very important for us to understand. Psalm 6 is meant to be sung. In general, every psalm in the book of Psalms is meant to be sung. Now think about what that means when we think about our suffering. Music is meant to draw our emotions out while at the same time we're singing truth. It's good to sing when you are suffering. There are times when it's good to worship your way out of some of the darkest moments of your life. I don't want to share the exact circumstances, but about five years ago, I showed up to church on Sunday morning enduring much suffering, a lot of pain, which is getting at me internally. It's hard. I was dejected. I was weary. I mean, I was a pastor on staff. I didn't have responsibilities that morning, so I just showed up. I just, I didn't even want to be there, to be quite frank. Um, not because of anyone in the church, just because circumstances were just hitting me, and I didn't know the way forward. I just wanted a little light, and everything seemed to be dark. Then all of a sudden, the song, It Is Well With My Soul, was played. I was talking to Logan about this last week because we played it last week, and that jogged this memory of that happened to me too. But that song was played, and all of a sudden it seemed like a little light began to break in because I was singing truth. I began to worship my way to God who brought me comfort in the midst of my circumstances. As you look at Psalm 6, imagine singing with David, Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in, my, in your anger. <laughs> right? I mean, I can't carry a tune, so I'm not going to sing it. i got to let other people lead me. But imagine yourself singing the psalm, singing in the midst of your suffering. Worshiping God with music is so powerful. It touches the soul and helps connect the head and the heart. David knows he's a sinner. David knows he's in need of help. David is, what is David banking on in particular? What is the balm for his pain? He banks on the mercy and compassion of God. If you're reading the ESV, the English Standard Version, it says in verse 2 that David pleads for God to be gracious. And that's fine. But I think a better translation of that particular word is actually mercy or compassion. David knows that his sin is in view, and he pleads with God to withhold the punishment that he deserves. He knows he's a sinner. And he's banking on the mercy of God. I mean, he's already been brought low. And he has been humbled. The only way forward is to throw himself upon the mercy of God. So in light of what we read and know about David, I have this question for you. Do you throw yourself upon the mercy of God when you are going through pain and suffering? Does God even come to mind when you're going through hardship? Or do you look elsewhere to placate the pain? If God is not your default as the source of your comfort in the midst of pain, then it's just time for you to course correct. Like, I'm going through this, and you just got to make a beeline for the cross. I'm not saying God does not provide other means to bring care and comfort. I am saying God must be the ultimate source. You know, I've also often wondered, uh, and I wondered this this last week, what distinguishes David from other kings and characters in the Bible, right? What distinguishes David? 
already mentioned David's troubled past, but he is still esteemed, right? Man after God's own heart and all that. Why is he esteemed? For a moment, let's compare King Saul to King David. Both were kings of Israel, right? Both were trending up early in their kingship. Both sinned gravely, and there were consequences for their sin. Yet we view Saul and David differently, right? Why? Here's why. David had a humble heart before God. He had a humble heart before God. Saul was proud and had a hard heart. David worshiped God in his darkest moments. In the midst of Saul's darkest moments, what did he do? He walked away. Listen, God is not clueless when it comes to your pain and suffering. Whether your suffering is self-induced because of sin or tragedy strikes from nowhere. God knows you are not perfect. God knows that. But here is what God asks of you this morning. Can you trust him with your pain? Can you approach him with humility in the midst of your suffering? Can you worship God in your tears? When your soul is greatly troubled, God does invite you to say, How long, O Lord? Ask the question, How long, O Lord? Remember he, remember he is faithful and remember his faithful love, verse 4, and know that he will deliver you from pain and suffering either in this life or in heaven. So in verses 1 to 5, we read the plea, How long, O Lord? Now let's look a little bit more at the pain that accompanies the plea. Here are verses 6 and 7. We read, I am weary with my moaning. I mean, just imagine this in your own head. And maybe it's easier for, for you to imagine. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows because of all my foes. Not the cheeriest psalm in the world, eh? It's so important for us to read and to know and to grasp. Weariness. Moaning, tears, a drenched couch, weeping. Some of you know the sorrow expressed in verses 6 and 7. I know that. You wake up in the morning without the desire to get out of bed. Your pillow is soaked with tears. Let's say you can get up and you make your way to the couch and sit down, but your elbows are on your knees and your hands are in your face and tenues continue to stream down the cheeks. You know that feeling because you've lived it and you experienced it. You woke up thinking you had no more tears left, but there you are crying. And all you know the reasons for those particular tears. And God knows as well. I don't need to chronicle the various tragedies that strike life, but here's what you do need to know. It's what David knew. God sees the tears. God sees the tears. Do not think for a moment that God is absent in your darkest days. It's quite the contrary. I mean, we're going to hear more from Psalm 23 next week, but when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what do we know? God is with you. He sees the tears. God's goodness is magnified in the midst 
of your tears. Your tears are not an admission of weakness, but demonstrate your humble dependence upon your sovereign and gracious God. I know I, know I said this last week, but it's worth repeating. Individualism is not a thing in Christianity. It's not. Newsflash. Over and over and over, you need to be driven back to your creator and sustainer, especially in your weeping. What else do we need to know about these particular verses and how they're applied? Not only does God see your tears, God cares about your tears. He sees and he cares. Let the letter of 2 Corinthians um, instruct us here. The Apostle Paul opens his letter with these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Why does Paul say this? Who comforts us in our affliction. So we're comforted by God, and Paul continues, so that we can go and comfort others. 2 Corinthians 1 not only says God comforts you in your tears, but you are not alone. You are not alone in your weakest and darkest moments. You're not alone. You may feel like you're alone, like feel like you're alone, but you are not alone. Don't believe that lie in those dark moments. Do not believe that lie that you're alone. Even though you feel that way, you are not alone. When a person suffers, there is a temptation to recoil and close people out. I know that because I've been there. But the church exists in part to be a means of grace when there is suffering, when there is weeping. In other words, Christians are called to suffer within community. Let me say that again. Christians are called to suffer within community. Yes, there are moments when a person may be, may be able to grieve privately. I get that. Been there. It is likely David privately pens Psalm 6 in his room by himself with tears. However, when one person in the church suffers, we all feel the pain. When one member of the family is hurt, all members of the family hurt. I mean, what, what do we read in the book of Romans? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Yes, yes, rejoice. When your brother or sister rejoices, guess what? You rejoice. You know, when your brother or sister is weeping, what do you do? Weep. You are there for your brother and sister in Christ. Allow the body of Christ to care for you as an extension of God's care for you. God works through the church to bring comfort. Okay, I have one more point to make. When you find yourself in a place when the tears have drenched the pillow, one day, your tears will be turned into joy. Will be turned into joy. Jesus makes this point in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. He compares the sorrows you face with a woman giving birth. Now, I'm just hanging with Jesus, not me, right? In the labor process, all you ladies know who have given birth. There's a lot of pain going on, right? There's pain. It hurts. I haven't experienced it, but you know, see my wife go through the pain. But the moment that child is born and is placed into the arms of the mother, what is there? 
Joy. Joy. I'll, I'll never forget the first time I saw that. When, when Chloe was born, Sharice held that child. So much happiness, so much joy. There was pain, but one day there'll be joy. There will be joy. So too will there be a day when your sorrow will be turned into joy. So the expression of pain accompanies the plea in a person's suffering. But there is a hopeful future, which I'll talk a little bit more here in a moment. Before looking at verses 8 to 10 and the path forward from the tears, I want to make a critical point. It's important that you or anyone else or anyone else does not define you by your suffering. Do not be defined by the perpetual sin that causes suffering. Do not be defined by the suffering you, you face when tragedy unexpectedly strikes. What I'm really getting at is about how you understand your identity. Redemption Hill Church, you will remember we spent a lot of time talking about identity from the book of Ephesians, right? Go back to Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3. Spent a lot of time talking about your identity in Christ. Which means you are defined by Christ. We live in a culture that is increasingly attempting to define you. Right? Put you into a group. You're, you're defined in multiple ways. The spirit and ideas of our age is trying to place an identity upon your life. And most times, multiple identities. But listen up. You are not defined by the way you were raised as a child. You are not defined by your depression and anxiety. You are not defined by the cancer. You are not defined by the tragic loss of a family member or friend. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by your marital struggles. You are not defined by anything that is not your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your identity, even in the midst of pain and suffering. That is so important to remember. I cannot stress it enough. I mean, these examples I mentioned, marital struggles, cancer, right? That's heart, it's heartbreaking. All of that is heartbreaking. And God cares for your heartbreak, but do not allow your suffering to be your identity. Do not allow your pain to be your identity. The path toward healing is to look toward Christ and remember, your identity is wholly wrapped up in him. Your Savior suffered and died so that he could enter into your suffering. Christ rose from the dead to give you a hope that one day, one day, one day, your suffering will cease. And there will be no more tears. But until that day, do not be defined by what ails you. But allow suffering, allow suffering to drive you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Two more verses to contend with. Three, excuse me. The path. It's the path in the midst of the pain and the plea. Verse 8. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, David says. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. In a moment. In verses 1 to 5, we read how David is greatly troubled. 
In verses 6 and 7, we read how tears soak the pillow of David. Now in verses 8 to 10, David compares his present reality with a future hope, a future hope. Beginning in verse 8, David begins to fight for faith. David says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, right? David isn't speaking a reality into his present existence, but he trusts God has heard his plea and that God is the one who's going to move on his behalf. He knows that God sees his tears. He knows that God accepts his prayers. Verse 9. You can't see this in the English, but throughout this entire psalm, the word translated as troubled, we see that in verse 10, is used five times prior. Prior to verse 8, um, David talks about the troubles upon his life. But then in verse 10, he says, his enemies will be troubled. He feels the trouble for himself, but he knows that one day God is going to trouble my enemies and he will care for his child. God will ultimately win the day. All his enemies will be ashamed by God. Now, how can David be so certain, right? Like, how can you be certain in the midst of your suffering and pain? The same guy who is in agony here in Psalm 6 is the same dude who writes in Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my shield. In him, my heart trusts. His heart does not trust in his circumstances. His heart trusts in his Lord. And he says in that particular psalm, in Psalm 28, verse 7, it is God who helps him. Again, your suffering is meant to create trust in God. It's not without purpose. Yes, I understand it is hard to see in the moment. I get that. But it's so important to remember, it drives you to trust in your God. It is meant to show you the strength of your God. Your suffering is meant to create a greater longing for this future hope. I want to read for you about your future hope. I'm going to end on this. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we read about what is to come. Um, if the Old Testament prophets were right about the first coming of Jesus Christ, I'm going to hang my hat on the book of Revelation instructing me about the second coming of Jesus Christ. If the Old Testament prophets nailed it, I'm going to trust the Apostle John who wrote Revelation as well. And here is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Again, make this, make this passage very personal for you. If you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, if you're crying out to God, how long, O Lord, allow this particular passage to minister to your heart. Here's Revelation 21, verses 1 and 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear. How many tears? What will God do? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what we have to look forward to in the midst of suffering. God will wipe away every tear, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, 
nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord, until you keep the promises of Revelation 21? How long until you wipe away all the tears? How long until death will be no more? How long until the mourning and the crying will cease? How long until the chronic pain will go away? How long until the marital troubles end? How long, O Lord? King David did not know how long. I do not know how long. But this is what I can say, is that the Son of God who came into this world to be the realized hope of Psalm 6, will come back. He will come back to defeat his enemies and yours. Because if you are a child of God, your enemies are God's enemies. He will come back to provide for you lasting comfort and peace. And until that day, we can cry with expectation, we can cry with longing, and we can cry with hope. How long, O Lord, Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.